You're listening to Sermon Audio from Jerusalem Church, an independent Reformed church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Our expository preaching ministry is devoted to proclaiming the law and the gospel for the glory of God and the salvation, growth, and comfort of Christ's church. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us online at JerusalemChurch.net. Here's a message that we hope strengthens your faith and comforts your soul. Well, it's called an Ironman triathlon. It's one of the most physically demanding athletic events on earth. 2.4 miles of swimming, 112 miles of bike riding, 26.2 miles of running. Rigorous. After about 13 hours of strenuous activity, an Ironman triathlete could burn over 10,000 calories Uh, And they face many physical threats. Dehydration is a threat. Bonking is a threat. Bonking is when glucose levels drop and muscles just run out of, of fuel. So whoever wants to finish an Ironman triathlon um, needs a good nutrition and hydration plan. Their endurance depends on it. Triathlete Jordan Blanco said, when you're competing in endurance events that last up to 17 hours, you need an eating and drinking strategy that will fuel you all the way to the finish line. Endurance depends in large part on proper nutrition throughout the race. And the plan has to include the right nutrition. The athlete can't simply drink water because the right amount of electrolytes are needed. And I don't think Krispy Kreme's a good idea either. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Brothers and sisters, we are currently running an Ironman called the Christian life. And it's rigorous. Anyone who thinks otherwise is probably not running it. We daily face the threats of temptation and sin, exhaustion from fighting against the flesh and the devil, thoughts of tossing in the towel because it's too hard. And here's where you need the comfort and the confidence of Christ's promise to feed and hydrate your soul unto eternal life. How does Christ do that exactly? Ironman triathlons have aid stations uh, throughout the race that provide calories and hydration. It's never good to run past them. What are Christ's aid stations along our race? The answer is simple. Christ nourishes and strengthens our souls by his word and sacraments. Both work together. If we are to persevere to the finish line, we need to fuel up often at Christ's aid stations along the race course. In fact, our our endurance depends on it. Is that how you receive the Lord's Supper? Do you receive it as the nourishment and refreshment that you need to run the race with endurance? And I hope so. Do we understand everything about how the Spirit works through the supper. No, no we don't. The Holy Spirit works in mysterious ways, but Christ, our gracious host, 
promises to nourish and hydrate us. Christ is our vitality. When we receive the supper from him, uh, we're, we're not just looking at a picture of him for encouragement and, and inspiration. We're actually receiving him and the benefits of his grace. He is our endurance. Dear church, here's how we need to think about the Lord's Supper. Jesus gives you his true body in his supper to feed upon spiritually by faith so that you have strength to run the race and persevere to the end to enjoy eternal life with him. And I hope to help you grasp that point. Now, Ironman triathletes swim in some deep waters, and we're going to swim in some deep theological waters this morning, which is good for us, because it pushes us to find more comfort and confidence in the depths of the gospel. Additionally, I want to disclose this, that I borrow insights from minds and voices from ages past and present. I learn a lot from others. And their wisdom and their work show up in my preaching. I don't always give the names, but please know that I'm not thinking and I'm not speaking alone. God revealed the gospel of Christ differently in the old covenant than he does in the new covenant. The new covenant is more stunning. The gospel of Christ was first preached In the garden, Adam and Eve broke the covenant of works and sinned against God. No longer could they please God because they were now corrupted by sin. So God graciously established another covenant, not one of works, but one of grace. And in this covenant of grace, God offers sinners salvation and life in Christ upon the necessary condition of faith. And God promises his people, the Holy Spirit, who works faith in their hearts by the gospel. God preached, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was the promise of a coming serpent-slaying seed, son, and savior who would rescue them from the curse. The gospel, that gospel, became then clearer and clearer and clearer as redemptive history unfolded. God established the Mosaic Covenant, or the Old Covenant, at Mount Sinai. Under the Old Covenant, the gospel of the future Christ was administered or dispensed differently than it is now under the Old Covenant. Uh, or under the new covenant, how it's uh, dispensed and administered now. Same gospel, different administrations. Same Christ, different ways to communicate Christ. Same glorious end for both covenants, the new heavens and the new earth. How did God reveal the gospel of Christ to his church under the old covenant? How did God build their faith? Well, keep in mind that under the Old Covenant, God's people believed a divine promise to be fulfilled in the future. Their faith looked ahead to Christ, and God communicated Christ through types or shadows. Now, dictionary.com defines a type as 
a symbol of something future. As an Old Testament event serving as a prefiguration of a New Testament event. So the gospel was communicated to, uh, uh, to the Old Covenant church through types and shadows, foreshadows. The gospel of salvation through a crucified and risen Christ was revealed under the Old Covenant by various things. Promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and shadows and ordinances. Even God's provision of prophets, priests, and kings. These various types communicated Christ to God's covenant people. The Holy Spirit used types to instruct and build up the faith of the church under the old covenant. Your sinus explained, quote, in the old covenant, the faithful were received into the favor of God on account of the Messiah that was to come and the sacrifice which he would offer. In the new the same blessing as obtained for the sake of the Messiah who has already come and for the sacrifice which he has already offered in our behalf, end quote. So the gospel was given through faint types and shadows in the old covenant, but becomes beautifully stunning in the new covenant because Jesus Christ has come as the fulfillment of all of those types and shadows, all of those gospel promises. They were all about Jesus the Christ. The new covenant and its signs and seals are now clearer, are now more stunning. We now see the beauty of Christ with, with much more color and texture and glory. Let, let's swim a little bit farther. Throughout redemptive history, God has used signs and seals to communicate his gospel to his beloved people. A sign communicates something greater than itself, a reality beyond itself. The sign is not the thing itself. It points to the greater thing. A seal confirms something that is greater than itself, a reality beyond itself. The seal is not the thing itself, but it does authenticate the greater thing. Sacraments, then, are holy, visible signs and seals. Along with God's word, sacraments more fully communicate and confirm the gospel for believers. God gives sacraments to instruct and to build up the faith of Christ's church. God doesn't simply give the gospel in words. Like show and tell, God also visualizes the gospel to see and to experience. And through sacraments, Christ is represented, sealed, and applied to believers for their salvation and eternal life. Those who look to Christ by faith as he is signified and sealed in the sacraments actually receive Christ by faith by receiving the sacraments from him. No faith, no gospel benefits. So it's relatively simple to understand, I think. 
the substance of the old and new covenants is the same. The promise of salvation and eternal life in Christ for all who believe. But the administration of that covenant promise is different in the old and new covenants. Just as Colossians 2 connects baptism and circumcision, Jesus connected the Lord's Supper to Passover by instituting the Lord's Supper at his last Passover meal. Don't miss the beautiful connection between old covenant signs and seals of the gospel and new covenant signs and seals of the gospel. Try to understand those connections and revel in them. When thinking about gospel signs and seals, realize this. The signs and seals are exactly that. Signs and seals. They are not the reality themselves. They are means of grace. Means by which Christ gives you and me the benefits of the gospel. The the only way to truly receive Christ is to truly believe Christ. In the sacraments, the Spirit gives you Christ through faith. He works in your heart by the gospel communicated by his word and sacraments. We, We must trust the Spirit to work through God's ordained means, word and sacraments, to apply his great benefits, the benefits of the gospel to his people, even his little ones. A property deed which transfers property ownership needs a notary seal. And the notary seal verifies and protects the owner's right to that property. But the deed and the seal are not the property itself, nor are they actually the ownership itself. They confirm and protect ownership. So folks, all of the benefits of the gospel are yours in Christ when you believe the gospel. And the sacraments verify for you the benefits of the gospel which are yours in Christ. They strengthen God's promise for you. The the Holy Spirit is in Christ and the Holy Spirit is also in you and the Spirit gives you grace in the supper to more and more unite you to his sacred body. This is a wonderful mystery. There's grace to receive in the supper. Now with this in mind, we find Jesus using sacramental language. We could say figurative language when instituting the Lord's Supper. So then we have to think sacramentally and not literally when we try to understand Christ's words of institution. Jesus, the gracious host, took common bread, blessed it, and used it to signify and seal the gospel for his weak and weary disciples. Verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. They were eating the Passover together. And that's theologically significant. And I love what Luke included. When they reclined at table, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Wow, Jesus was excited to give them the gospel in the supper. 
While eating the Passover, Jesus was actually fulfilling the Passover. He was instituting a new and a better meal, a supper that gave greater gospel clarity. No more types, no more shadows. The reality had come. And it was Jesus, the gracious host, who took the bread in his hands. He was accomplishing their salvation and giving them a meal to boost their faith. They they were struggling to understand the gospel. He had taught them the gospel. Now he was showing them the gospel. Jesus, the host, was giving them his beloved church himself. Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. He had explained multiple times before what would happen in Jerusalem Just like he taught in John 6, he wanted them to eat and to drink him spiritually by faith, to live because of communion with him. He was taking them deeper into the gospel to give them himself, just like he did with his word, taking them deeper into the gospel. Jesus has human hands. He has hands like you and me. And in those hands, in the hands that would be pierced for our transgressions, Jesus took common bread. He held it. The the bread was distinct from him, not of the same substance as him. He was not carrying himself. The, The bread was not transforming into an extension of his physical body as if bread became another hand or foot or or even became the same physical substance as the hand that held it. Jesus was a human being holding common bread in front of his beloved disciples and he had a glorious, glorious purpose for that bread. He would use it to give them the gospel Grace, the gospel grace that they needed, the benefit of the gospel. And folks, notice how Jesus was filled with thanksgiving to God. Verse 26 says, and after blessing it, and Luke and Paul have, and when he had given thanks, the cross was approaching. Bearing the wrath of God was quickly approaching. Yet Jesus was still filled with gratitude and thankfulness to God. That's amazing. His blessing the bread in the middle of the meal, that was unusual, indicates him beginning a new meal. Jesus was consecrating or he was setting apart common bread for this holy purpose. Calvin said, quote, So then the bread which had been appointed for the nourishment of the body is chosen and sanctified by Christ to a different use to a different use, so as to begin to be spiritual food, end quote. And that's important, spiritual food. As they ate bread with their mouths, the spirit was nourishing their souls with Christ. But never, ever forget that the only way to receive the benefits of Christ is to eat and drink by faith. By faith. Without faith, it's a feast of God's judgment. 
One study note explained, salvation is not through the sacraments. Salvation is by faith in Christ. Yet where faith is present, the sacraments are not ignored or neglected. They are a vital part of the worship of God and the nurture of the Christian life. I love that little line. They're part, an essential part of the nurture of the Christian life. Do you realize, dear ones, what your Savior does for you through the supper? Jesus, your gracious host, gives you common bread through which he gives you his crucified body. And his spirit applies to you the benefits of the gospel as you eat bread with your mouth and eat Christ by faith, the mouth of your soul. You eat bread with the mouth. You eat Christ and his benefits with the soul. Eating is vital to your endurance. Jesus, the gracious host, gave his disciples the bread as a sign and seal of the reality of his body broken for their salvation, sanctification, and strength. Matthew says, and after blessing it, broke it. With his hands, he separated the bread. He divided the bread. It must be broken in order to what? To be shared. He himself needed to be broken in order to share with them his life. In in a few more moments, he would suffer the cross and conquer the grave so that they could share in his life. They needed to know that Christ was offering his own body on the cross to spare them from God's wrath and judgment. He was taking their place. So they needed to eat him by faith to have life in them. As they ate by faith, Christ would fortify their faith. He broke common bread, and they ate common bread. He used common bread for an uncommon purpose, to nourish their souls with himself, to confirm their faith, to confirm their union with him. Baptism is administered once. Baptism signifies and seals regeneration or new birth. Baptism is an initiation into the covenant and into the church. Baptism communicates, I belong to Christ. The Lord's Supper is different. The Supper signifies and seals Christ's nourishment and the preservation of the church. He feeds and hydrates them on their way to the promised land of heaven. Your sinus rightly taught about the Lord's Supper, quote, it is God that feeds and supports us. Therefore, bread does not nourish us. The Holy Spirit does indeed confirm our faith, but it is through the word and the sacraments as God feeds and nourishes us through the use of bread, end quote. Now, folks, We believe, right? I mean, as Protestants, we are just going to be like, yes, we are saved by grace alone. But then when it comes to our sanctification and our spiritual growth, we sometimes think our sanctification depends on us, right? I have to read my Bible more. I have to pray more. I have to memorize scripture more. I need to fight more. I need to run harder And those are good things. Those are good things. But we need to receive grace from Christ 
so that his spirit sanctifies us and his spirit conforms us to the image of Christ by grace alone. Sanctification is also a work of God's free grace. How do we receive grace from our Lord? Through his word, yes, but, but do we also expect his grace in the Lord's Supper? You, you wouldn't expect to finish an Iron Man without proper nutrition and hydration. So don't expect to fight the flesh, the devil, and the temptations of this world without gra- uh, the, the grace of Christ being given you in the word and sacraments. You, you need both aid stations. The sacraments are meant to help you believe the gospel as well. You gotta eat. And when you do, your Lord will nourish and sustain you with himself. Word and sacraments, folks. Word and sacraments. Now, Jesus didn't simply break the bread. He didn't simply give it to them to look and to touch. He gave them bread to eat. To eat. Jesus, the gracious host, gave his disciples his true body to eat, to nourish, strengthen, and comfort their souls. And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He gave, they received. He gave them something to eat for the benefits of their souls, and they received benefits by faith. Eat the bread with your mouth. Eat me by faith with your soul as I give you myself. And they would have remembered John 6. They must eat him by believing in him. They would have remembered that. He said, take, eat. Eat what? The bread. But only the bread? Is the bread all that there is? No. No, eat Christ. Take Christ into you by faith. Christ must be in you. Christ must abide in you. And you must abide in Christ. Ingest his body. Now, was he speaking literally? Was he speaking literally? Were they supposed to eat his flesh with their mouth? Their mouths. Here's where Rome says yes. Rome says yes. Romanists believe the bread is transubstantiated into the physical flesh of Christ so that people eat Christ's actual physical flesh with their mouths. Lutheranism also says yes. Lutheranism says the bread remains bread, but the physical flesh of Christ is in, with, under, and through the bread invisibly. Luther believed that the sons, I know this gets thick here, folks, but but track with this, okay? Luther believed that the son's divine omnipresence, he's he's everywhere in in his divinity, was communicated to the son's humanity in a way that his humanity could be here and there and there and there all at the same time. His humanity. And that's why Lutherans believe they eat Christ physically with their mouths. But is that what Jesus really meant? He did say, 
This is my body. That sounds straightforward, right? Right? But see, Jesus also said things like, I am the door, and I am the true vine, and I am the bread of life. And was he speaking literally there? Is Jesus a piece of wood with a doorknob on his chest? Is, is, he, is he a plant that has grapes literally growing on him? Is he actually a piece of bread? Well, of course not. Of course not. In fact, in John 6, when Jesus talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, those who took him literally did not understand him and they did not believe him. So there, in, that, in John 6, a literal interpretation of Jesus was extremely dangerous. Here, Jesus was speaking, uh, wasn't speaking literally to his disciples. He was speaking figuratively or representatively or sacramentally. He used sign and seal language to communicate the gospel. And Heidelberg 78 very helpfully explains this. Now, I mentioned John 6. I've been talking about that. It's a critical passage here. John 6 is very, very helpful in understanding the Lord's Supper. It's not talking about the Lord's Supper, but the principles of what he's saying are absolutely relevant to the Lord's Supper. So meditate on John 6. But here's a little bit of it, a little taste of John 6, and pay close attention to Christ's figurative language and what he wants to communicate to them, John 6, 52 through 58. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he, will he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate. He's pulling on the Old Testament, the manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, he's talking about himself, will live forever. What did Jesus mean? Is Jesus a cannibal? What does he mean? Well, before this, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And right before that, he said, please get this, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. Eating means believing. Eating is something that you do with your soul, and you can't eat physical flesh with your soul. By saying, this is my body, Jesus was speaking sacramentally and meaning this is my real body given to you to eat with your soul for the nourishment and refreshment of it. Bread alone is eaten with the mouth. Christ alone is eaten with the soul. And when he is eaten, the soul is nourished, refreshed, strengthened, emboldened, heartened, encouraged, built up. Should I keep going? You get the idea, folks. This is why Heidelberg 76 says what it does, right? 76 
is interpreting Christ and teaching you what Christ meant so that you can better eat him, better know how to eat him. The Heidelberg doesn't replace scripture. It explains scripture. 76 asks, what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his shed blood? And another way to ask that question would be to say, what on earth does Jesus mean in Matthew 26, 26 and following? It's another way to ask the question. And this is how Reformed Christians understand Jesus in Matthew 26, 26, because we have to do something with his words. We have to land somewhere. He means something, so what does he mean? This is very difficult work. All right, so what does he mean? And this is what we think he means when he says, take, eat, this is my body, weighing other scriptures in. This, this is how it answers. First, to accept with a believing heart all the suffering and the death of Christ and so receive forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Second, to be united more and more to his, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> to his sacred body through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us. Therefore, although Christ is in heaven and we are on earth, yet we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, and we forever live and are governed by one spirit as the members of our body are by one soul. That's what he means. That's what he's getting at. Faith, union, communion with him. Think about this. We are the body of Christ. We are united to Christ by faith. We abide in Christ. Christ abides in us. 1 Corinthians 6.15, Paul says that our bodies are members of Christ. Then he refers negatively to sexual immorality with a prostitute, kind of a dicey section of scripture, and mentions becoming one body with her. And he says, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's union language. And listen to what Paul said next. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's union language. That's communion with Christ. An inseparable union with our Lord. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Paul tells the church, the visible church in Corinth, the members of the church in Corinth, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He said in Romans 12, 5, so we, this is, a, this is the visible church in Rome, this is what he tells them. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Union with Christ, union with one another, communion with Christ, communion with one another in the visible church. So our union with Christ's body is corporate. It's corporate. The supper unites us more and more to his body and unites us more and more one to another by his spirit that is in Christ and that is in us. 
And I find Ephesians 5, 28 through 30 fascinating. I saw this, it jumped out at me. Has that ever happened to you when you're reading scripture and studying it? It just jumped out at me. I was like, oh my goodness, the connection here, this is amazing. It's fascinating and it relates to all that we're saying. So hang with me here. We are the body of Christ, the church. We are united to Christ and to one another by faith. And Paul talks about union and oneness with Christ and his church by talking about marriage. And Paul explained, listen carefully, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And, and keep in mind here as I, as I continue, the two shall become one flesh. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. You get that phrase? Nourishes and cherishes. That, that ought to be like refreshment to you as you hear that. Christ nourishes and cherishes his body. The church, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, in union with Christ, sharing the same Holy Spirit. How does Christ nourish you, his church? He feeds you his grace. And how does he do that? Now, many of you grew up in church traditions that see the Lord's Supper as merely a memorial, as a mere remembrance of Christ with your mind. No true nourishment, no true hydration, no grace, just a picture to look at as you run. But God is clear that Christ nourishes his body with his body. Take, eat, this is my body. That's Christ nourishing his people with himself. Now, I think we need to carefully consider whether we actually believe that the sacraments are means of grace. Do we actually believe that? Are they? Because if they are, Christ gives grace in and through them to us who need the grace. And Dr. R. Scott Clark said something very helpful that I think will challenge you and grow your understanding of the supper. Clark said this, some say communion is a mere memorial a sign given to help us remember Jesus' death and its significance. But if communion is nothing more than a memorial, then we are simply stirring up our faith by a kind of mental discipline that is hardly a robust gift of grace. That is hardly a robust gift of grace. Is the supper grace? If not... It would seem to be then a kind of spiritual discipline through which we need to strive, through which we need to believe more, to remember more. And that sounds like work and burden, not grace. Is the supper a mere spiritual discipline? Jesus did say, do this in remembrance of me. He did say that, right? But I submit to you that when Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. He was giving them something that needs to be received by faith. And he wasn't so much telling them something to do or to get to work. 
They were receiving him and they were receiving his benefits of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life by eating him by faith. The spirit at that moment was working in them grace. Now, when I visit the Lincoln Memorial in D.C., love it, love the memorials, I love the Lincoln Memorial. You can learn a lot at the Lincoln Memorial. You can read quotes by Lincoln. Do you know that little mistake that was made? Have you ever seen that where they chiseled a little too much or something and then they had to fill? Very fascinating things that you can learn there. But folks, Lincoln is dead. He's dead. He's not there and he can't do anything for you there. It's just cold stone. But Jesus Christ is alive. He is bone and flesh alive. And you are united to the alive Christ by faith. And he is still loving you and he is still serving you by his spirit in you. In fact, he is nourishing you and he is cherishing you, his church, as Ephesians 5 says. And by giving you his supper, by seating you, even you at his table, he is giving you incredible nourishment for your soul. As you feast upon the supper, you feast upon Christ who strengthens you. The substance of the supper is Christ, the real Christ. He is the host who wants to commune with you, who invites you to the table to commune with him because he wants to serve you. He wants to love you. He wants to, to care for your soul and nourish you. We do not eat the supper alone. We eat it with Christ and with one another. This is mysterious, but the Spirit leads us together into the presence of the crucified and risen and glorified Christ to do what? To commune with him. To commune with our beloved Christ. And we need that communion if we are ever going to make it to the finish line. And this feast, this feast is a foretaste of that day when we eat with him anew in the kingdom, in the new heaven, new earth, with our king. In his glory, we will eat with him. Now, Christina has a watch that measures her body battery. How the watch can tell that might be creepy. I don't know. How does it know? But it measures how much she moves, I think, throughout the day, and then gives her a little meter that tells her how much energy she used up, something to that effect. And uh, sometimes... We feel like our soul battery is just drained. It's depleted. It's low. We're discouraged that we keep going to the same sin over and over again. What's wrong with us? And it's just so discouraging. And we're anxious about circumstances around us. We're anxious about what people think about us. We're anxious about things that we have to respond to that we'd rather not respond to. And, and we're impatient and we're angry because we don't get what we want. And things aren't going as we want. And we just feel spiritually drained. We feel depleted. We need grace from Christ. And the good news is, he's very, very glad to give the grace to those who want it from him. And ask him for the grace Self-righteous people don't want grace, and they don't ask for grace. 
They don't think they need grace. Weak and weary believers? Oh, they know they desperately need grace from Christ. And they want Christ to feed them. And they ask Christ to feed them. And they receive what Christ has to feed them. So then it only makes sense that we would take advantage of Christ's aid stations along our race course of endurance. It's long. It feels long. It's tiring. It's exhausting. It's rigorous. But we better stop at those aid stations. We're not going to make it. Right? To run past the word and sacraments would be utter foolishness. It would be to starve the soul while running the race. And so I leave you with this. Jesus, your gracious host, gives you his supper in order to, through faith and union with him, give you life. Nourish and strengthen your soul and preserve you on the hard way that leads to eternal life. Folks, Jesus will get you there. Jesus will preserve you along the way. Jesus will make sure that you have the soul nourishment that you need to keep going. How does he do it? Simple. Word and sacraments. Word and sacraments. How do you eat? You receive the word and sacraments by faith and you feast on Christ with your soul. You need Jesus. I need Jesus, and Jesus gladly, like this is good news, Jesus gladly lavishes himself on you because he loves you through the word and sacraments. Receive him with thanksgiving. Rejoice that he's communicating something to you. You don't have to wonder. You can just receive and bask in his grace. Receive him with thanksgiving because he loves you and because he is totally committed to fueling you as you run. When you eat him, you keep going. Why? Because he keeps you going. Rejoice that he does.